speaking with acclaimed author Alexandra Fuller. Her debut book, Don't Let's Go to the Dogs Tonight, was a New York Times notable book for 2002. Uh, won a 2002 Book Sense Best Nonfiction Book, then a finalist for the Guardian's First Book Award, and uh, also a winner of the 2002 Winifred Holtby Memorial Prize. Fuller has also written extensively for magazines and newspapers, including The New Yorker Magazine, National Geographic Magazine, Vogue, and Granta Magazine. Her reviews have appeared in New York Times Book Review, The Financial Times, and The Toronto Globe. Fuller was born in England in 1969 and moved to Africa with her family when she was two. She's married a American river guide uh, who was out of Zambia at the time in 1993. They left Africa in 1994 and now reside in Wyoming with their three children. Welcome, Alexandra. It's a pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you for having me. Yes, yes, this is going to be fun. I want to talk about your latest book, Cocktail Hour Under the Tree of Forgetfulness, which was released earlier this month, but we'll get to that in a minute. But let's first talk about your childhood, if you don't mind. <laughs> <laughs> you grew up in Rhodesia in the 70s and 80s. I understand, uh, well, I remember very clearly that Civil War was, uh, was just uh, in every newspaper of the country for many, many months, uh, actually years throughout that time. Um, so do me a favor, tell us, tell our audience about your childhood. What was it like growing up in that environment? I understand Rhodesia, uh, Zimbabwe used to be called Rhodesia, is that correct? Yes. Or, correct. Yes, okay. Yeah. Well, I understand it's absolutely beautiful, uh, but it was a very chaotic and dangerous time for you, wasn't it? Tell us about that. I think there was a double, I, I think there was a double whammy, which was growing up in Rhodesia during a civil war, which had its own inherent danger and the thing about civil war as opposed to the ways that america is conducting for example it's two wars right now is that it is very easy for us to distance ourselves from the wars that we're currently fighting right now in a civil war or when the war is happening on your soil there is no distance um it really is face to face it becomes incredibly personal the war goes into your homes your schools uh, everyone around you becomes involved um, and it is, in a way, like the weather system that you exist in. And both my parents um, fought in the war. By the end of the Rhodesian Civil War, there were so few people for the white government to call on to fight that they were conscripting all men between the ages of 18 and 60. And they were expected to fight for six months at a time. Mm. Uh, or, you know, six months out of every year, six weeks at a time. On top of which, my mother, of course, being my mother, volunteered to fight in the war, um, never being one to stay out of a good fight. And so as a child, you are growing up in this atmosphere where war is just sort of normal. So you don't really understand it as something separate and distinct from you, the way that you would never dream that, um, that you know, weather is separate and distinct from you. And I'm growing up with this British mother who absolutely refuses to pamper me. Uh, so there wasn't a lot uh, standing between me and some sort of fairly rough experiences. Hmm. It. Um, your mom was uh, was tough, huh? I mean, she had she had some she had some uh, problems of her own, right? Well, I, you know, I think it's hard to tell. 
I think the older I get, the more sympathetic and compassionate I am about and towards her. Because I think that, you know, she grew up in this time of kind of incredible... Um, her luxury is not the right word, but entitlement. You know, she was white growing up in Kenya at a time when the, you know, whites sort of had precedent over the empire. And then she moved, uh, my parents moved to Rhodesia. Things quickly got difficult and tough for them. Um, you know, they really paid, I think, mm. for their racism and for their determination to stay in a country that was white run. Mm. And in the end, it cracked her. But I really believe that I think we all have some sort of underlying um, uh, sort of fundamental issue that if we're pushed far enough, we will all crack, maybe in different places. And for my mother, it was, you know, this sort of incredible um, manic depression, which she coped with on her own for years and years and years, as mm. they would say in this country, self-medicating mm -hmm. you know, with a mixture of sort of alcohol and uh, pills, but you know, in in a way, the early stages of her illness were disguised by the war and the insanity of war. I mean, when you're crazy, but everything around you is equally crazy, you're just not so it's not so noticeable. Well, when you're a child, um, you don't see ins insanity. I don't think. Um, I think you recognize insanity. You know, after you've been on this earth a little while, um, it was normal for you. It was a normal life. I mean, that's where you were. That's who you are were. Um, you developed through that uh, through those years. Um, so it, you've grown up. You you've been able to step back and take a look at your life differently. It, it, you know. Realistically. I think there is something to that, and I also think the older you get, the more experience you have and the more you're able to look around and see uh, mm. what, how other people's worlds are. Um, and so it becomes more obvious if you're, um, you know, in a place. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I mean, it really wasn't until I got to the States, in other words, that I was, and I was in my mid-20s that I was able to look back my life on Africa with any kind of clarity and realized that it was not certainly an ordinary middle-class American upbringing, that's for sure, even though that is sort of what my life became. Right. Well, you were, you were white in a uh, predominantly black culture, correct? Yes. Okay. Um, did you feel any... Uh, discrepancies did you feel that you were targeted or, or did you stand out during those young years or or was or did it all fold in together I think um, you well so you don't know any different I mean I was two going on three when I hmm. went to Africa so I had no you know idea of what the color of my skin was mm -hmm. um, that you know that is something. Racism and uh, and uh, an acknowledgement of race is something you have to be taught. It's not, I don't think, innate in children. I think that you learn it. So I will never forget um, my mother talking about um, coloreds mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> and me trying to imagine what coloured people were, and in my ch childish imagination, assuming that they were people 
uh, sort of red and blue and green. That's yeah. what colored meant to me. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think you have to learn that sort of level of racism, which certainly my parents and the government and the system that I was raised in were in a hurry to teach me, that's for sure. Of course, of course. Um, I grew up during the race conflict in the uh, 60s um, in New England, um, although I never saw color as, as difference because my dad and mom taught us that, you know, we're all the same and and that's the way it was. I mean, we I grew up in a very integrated society. So I, I was not – I had no um, uh, pre-notions of, uh, of race or color um, even today. I just – I don't understand it. I, I, I You know, it just really ticks me off sometimes. I just don't understand it. <laughs> um, well, if you don't have the enzyme to process it, I, if you haven't been given that enzyme to process it, I think that is exactly what happens, which is the gift of it. And I think even once – you realize, I mean, of course, at some level you grow up and, and, and learn to identify certain ethnic groups. One of those, he has a really interesting lesson in it. So because whites were so finely graded in Rhodesia, there was no difference between one white person and another. For example, it didn't matter if your background was Mediterranean or, you know, Jewish or Northern European or Dutch or, or Afrikaans. If you were white, you were, you know, quote-unquote superior. Mm. So I had no idea what anti-Semitism was until I came to the U.S. <laughs> mm-hmm. because I hadn't been taught to see it. Yeah. Um, and I think that was, uh, um, that's a, that is a perfect example of what you're talking about. Yeah. Well, as a young child, um, being wide-eyed and sucking all of life in and everything, um, it, it's it's remarkable to me because I, I I I read your book Cocktail Hour Under the Tree of Forgetfulness and I I was surprised with the detail of memory, um, you know. So so how'd you get it? I mean, what what stands out in your mind? Um, um, what, what's, well, what's, I do think that if you have a very real. Um, not just fear, but reality that you could be killed at any moment. It does sharpen the mind wonderfully. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And so that, you know, was certainly part of it. I will say that, you know, I've lived in the States now almost as long as I lived in Africa. Yeah. And my detail of memory about my life here is much blurrier. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly my husband, who grew up in a, you know, nice suburb in Pennsylvania in the States in a very sort of middle-class American family, has almost no memory of his childhood, um, whereas mine is is unbelievably vivid. And I think that it has a lot to do with it. I also think you're either born with a writer's sort of mind or you're not. Mm. Um, And I will hear this from other writers as well, where they will talk about having an almost voyeuristic sense of of bearing witness. Mm -hmm. And you realize at quite a young age you're not like other people, that you are constantly watching, taking sort of internal notes, being aware in a way that other people maybe are not. Um, they they teach. Then I think memories. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead. Go, 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 go. No. Well, I also think that memories build on each other, and I certainly found that um, in the uh, in writing the first book, Don't Let's Go to the Dogs Tonight. I would remember, for example, an advertising jingle. And that would trigger some other memory. Um, writing this book was helped enormously by the hours and hours of interviews I did with my parents, 
um, and my mother's sister. And I went back to Kenya with my mother and with her sister. And that sort of triggered memories with my aunt. And so I actually did the research for this book in a more uh, sort of traditional way, if you like, than, than purely memoir, where you're just sort of groping around for scraps of reminiscence. I went back through boxes and boxes of photographs, um, some of the notes that my grandmother had kept that my aunt has, um, the collective memory of their childhood, I was able to go back and explore. And I did proper sort of sit down and taped interviews with both my parents. Um, and then the access on the internet was incredible. For example, I was able to find the dates and times and durations of the mortar attacks of the town in which my sister and I were at boarding school on the Rhodesian border with Mozambique. When I wrote, don't let's go to the dogs tonight, I could remember obviously that we had been mortared. But now on the internet, there's access to records showing that on this and this day, from this time to this time, the town of Ampali was mortared by insurgents for, you know, this many minutes and this much ordinance was dropped. Mm-hmm. And that really was a gift. I mean, um, in order to be able to verify your memories with information that there is not access to on um, the internet was just amazing. Wow. Well, do, do you consider yourself um, a Rhodesian or an American? I mean, how, how, how are how do you fit yourself in this life? <laughs> do you have to? No, no, you don't. Do I need a label? <laughs> no, you don't need a label. No. That is a good question. Because I think that we... Um, I think that in times such as ours, in times when we're at war, when we're in crisis, we cling more and more to these sort of false lifeboats of identity as if they mean something. Mm -hmm. As if somehow my saying I'm an African Mm -hmm. would give me some kind of authority over the books that I write. Or as if me saying I'm American um, is shorthand for the protection I assume I'm entitled to, but none of that is true. And I heard an interview once with Cindy Sheehan, the peace activist, mother of Casey Sheehan, who was the Mm -hmm. soldier Mm -hmm. killed. um, And she was being interviewed by the BBC, Owen Bennett Jones, uh, giving us a sort of quite sharp interview. And he asked her if she was a patriot, you know, if she considered herself a patriot. And she said, no, I consider myself a matriot. Hmm. And Owen Bennett-Jones, being British, he actually squeaked. He got such a fright when she said that word on, on really? the air. Really? And he said, what do you mean by that? And she said, well, I don't consider that the children of the United States or the children of Iraq or the children of Afghanistan are entitled to life one more than the other. My place is on the earth. I, am, I belong to the nation of the earth. Um, and I remember exactly where I was when I heard that interview. I was in my kitchen in Wyoming. And because I often get asked this question, because I am so obviously a conundrum. I'm white. I was raised in Africa. I, I'm married to an American. I have British blood. You know, what am I? Mm. And I just sort of cheered because that went to the soul of who I attempt to be, which is loyal to the earth and to the people of the earth. Um, to think of myself really as a global citizen 
but to really bear in mind that there are special responsibilities when you are uh, the citizen of a nation such as the United States and you have the gifts of free speech, freedom of association. Well, yeah, you should know that better than anybody else. Uh. (laughs) Right. Those freedoms come with tremendous responsibility. What is, what are the moral uh, consequences of being free? What are the moral responsibilities of being free? Well, I think that's the dilemma that we're in uh, presently. I mean, look at what's going on in the world right now. Um, these these people all over the world, these nations, countries are are are, are fighting for independence. Um, I don't know whether the whole world is just freaked out on what's going on, or whether it's a time in our existence where there's change and we're having a problem with it. Um, <laughs> Yeah. To some people, to some people. And, and I agree. Yeah. I agree. You know, I'm I'm 57. You know, I don't like a lot of change. But but <laughs> but, uh, you know, if I if I open my heart and my ears and, and listen, you know, to my wife and other people that that uh, I hang with, uh, you know, if you open up yourself, you can surely get a different perspective. What what do you, what's your take on what's going on in the world now, Alexandra? I mean, you 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 were uh, raised in uh, a very tumultuous um, uh, time period uh, uh, yet you survived. I mean, you're an adult now. What do you what do you what do you see in the world right now? Cuz I I think there's a parallel myself. You know, I, yeah. Um, I think that there was a a theologian, theologian. Mm-hmm. How do we say that? Theologist. Who was, who, who, theologian. Or theologian. 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 Yeah. Theologian. Excuse me. Yes, we were groping for that word. Mm-hmm. But he sort of supposed that what uh, Jesus envisioned uh, for the end of the world wasn't a time of chaos and calamity, but a, mirac- a miraculous shifting of consciousness toward uh, imagination and curiosity. And I, I, you know, I'm not a Christian, I'm not a Buddhist, I'm not a, you know, I don't hold to any orthodoxy um, because I find that confining in and of itself. But I do think that there have been these sort of amazing um, leaders and prophets in our history who are worth listening to and that they um, tend to emerge in times of crisis. I think of Gandhi uh, I, I can't imagine uh, uh, internally, you know, the time that he lived through with the British Empire dismantling under his very feet the fear um, and transition that India was, was undergoing, let alone the world at that time. And he emerged out of that space. Um, you know, I don't need ever to be reminded Nelson Mandela emerging out of the horror of apartheid. Um, but I think in in time, Martin Luther King coming out of the era that you were talking about earlier. I think that we um, forget that in times of what looks like terror and chaos that some of our greatest creative thinkers come out of that. Um, but that we have to be you know, aware of the fact that you can't listen if you're in a place of fear. Yeah. You have to be in a place of openness. Um, I think to some level acceptance. Yeah. Um, 
and possibly even joy. Mm -hmm. Are you in a good place now? <laughs> you know, I would say that, you know, I think that we often mistake uh, comforts of security, um, that we somehow assume that if we're comfortable, uh, sort of, surrounded by acquisitions that that quote unquote is a good place mm -hmm. um, that's not what I strive for mm -hmm. so I um, am and I would say that I am feeling very curious about the space of transition that we're in one of the great gifts about writing this book while you know there was so much sort of turmoil and conflict going on in the world was that it reminded me my parents never lost it, lost their joy or their sense of possibility mm -hmm. and that really they stayed creative and passionate mm -hmm. so for them to start over again they were in their late 50s when they finally found 100 acres they had nothing to their name at that point they'd lost farms they had lost three children they'd lost wars mm -hmm. um, you could they, they could easily be, have been excused at that point for looking at their life as a litany of last and instead they chose to look at where they were going forward as a place of possibility. And they cleared their 100 acres with two donkeys. They were given two donkeys by the Minister of the Zambian Agriculture. Hmm. And they lived in a tent. And they started again in their late 50s. And what, you know, what a gift. What a, what a gift we have that as an example. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I read a blog uh, recently somewhere. Um, about your connection between Wyoming and Africa. Um, what is it? Um, is it the terrain? Land. The land. The land. The beautifulness. The, 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 the desperation. The solitude. What? I think a little bit of everything. It's mm. not necessarily an easy place to live. Um, right. It can be... Uh, certainly people fall in love with it very powerfully. People are influenced and made by it. I don't care if you're a, you know, if you're a roughneck drilling for natural gas mm -hmm. out in Pinedale or a cowboy, you know, moving cattle up in Cody or a mountain mm -hmm. guide in the Tetons. You cannot help but be shaped by, you know, this weather and this landscape. And I think the ways that we love it are different. I don't think it's... Um, I think that in this country, again, I think it goes back to our sort of knee-jerk need to categorize everybody. We think that we need to split ourselves into quote-unquote environmentalists and everybody else. Um, but I don't see that. I see people who either have a connection with land or who don't. I don't care what label you put on yourself. Hmm. Hey, I want to jump to something real quick. We're going to jump back. I'm looking at the cover of your book. First of all, I really like the, the shape and size of this book. Um, I'm, I'm so tired of seeing standard book sizes. Uh, and uh, this, this um, book is very well put together. And there's a, there's a color, it looks like a colorized photo on the cover of a little blonde girl holding the hand of a uh, chimpanzee. Is that you? Yes. That would be my mother. <laughs> That's your mom. Holy mother. That's ma my mom and her first best friend. Oh, be a son of a gun. Stephen Foster, the chimpanzee. No. As my mother says, a very, very civilized, polite chimpanzee. Uh, 
It is a absolutely wonderful cover. And when we got this book at the library um, uh, recently, um, I just looked at that thing and I said, holy mackerel. I mean, it, 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 it is so peaceful. It's a peaceful cover. <laughs> I mean, it looks it's, – it's very cool. It's very intriguing. I, um, it is intriguing, and, you know, it's my mother's deep connection to animals. I will jump in and say a word for Jane Goodall here. It is absolutely always a bad idea to keep a wild animal as a pet. It never ends well for the wild animal. I can definitely say that. Right. Having had experience with that scene in Africa, you always sort of coming across people who try and keep crippled or orphaned animals as pets, and the whole thing ends catastrophically. But what I love about that picture is my mother's and utter empathy with this animal and she has had that her whole life she has an almost miraculous connection with animals and land and it started very early that's that is wonderful that really is wonderful oh man well alexandra tell our audience if you would for a uh, for the next few minutes or so, or just get, what what is a typical day in the life of Alexandra Fuller now? Uh, you've got three um, children um, um, at different ages. Um, what what do you do? What do you do? What are you writing? Are you working on something down the road, or what's going on with you? Oh, I'm constantly writing, so that never goes away. I think when you, I think that people often think have this idea that writers must have a really nice life, that you wake up and drink tea and read a little bit and then, you know, mm. start hitting the wine at about noon and <laughs> <laughs> drunkenly attack a few pages of your book and collapse in some sort of romantic heap at about 8 o'clock. Yeah, right. But, you know, for me, writing really is um, what I do every day for most of the day. I always, always, always take time. Uh, and usually sometime in the middle of the day, um, to get out in the mountains, get out for a walk. Uh, again, I think land is just something that I have to feel that beneath my feet and remember to be grateful for it. Um, so I do take the time every day to walk with the dogs. Um, on days when I can, I mean, the great thing about being a writer is I can make my own schedule. I will try and take, especially my youngest daughter now, um, out for a walk and a picnic. And uh, I'm teaching her storytelling, and which I did with my other two children. So we take turns telling each other, story, you know, these fantastical stories that get more and more elaborate and outrageous. Um, so for me, I think, uh, you know, and then there's always laundry and cooking and cleaning, and that work is never done. You think? <laughs> ever. And the great thing about it, I think, is that for me anyway, um, the laundry is a task that uh, I can put it in and hang it up to dry and hold it and there's a lovely rhythm and um, you know beginning middle and end to laundry that just doesn't seem to happen with writing I feel as a writing is work that is never ever ever over yeah well it sounds like you you gain immense pleasure every day um, with your existence I mean that that's to me is uh, notable because it's it's tough getting through life nowadays um <laughs> it is well, as you well, know why have we forgotten the art of gratitude mm-hmm. um and i think that some of it has to do I, i'm going to sound like a complete and utter i don't know what something throwback from a different era 
But I think that we are such a competitive culture that it's the, even our language is so competitive. You're in it to win it. Um, I, you know, the sort of America's got whatever. I always butcher these titles. It drives my children crazy. America's got idol, I think is what I called it. But this, I, this notion that, that, you know, you're sort of pounding away to get to the top um, and you forget where you are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I and agree. Mm-hmm. I think that where we are is in the middle of, you know, our life. And that um, a friend of mine once told me this most beautiful thing. She said, there's two incredibly, the two most important days in anyone's life is the day that they are born and then the day that they know why. Wow, that's profound. I never and thought... I love that. And I, I hold that every day. So I remember, am I doing what I am doing. I love that. Yeah. That's, uh, to me, that's inner strength. You're a strong kid. I, I can tell. You're, <laughs> you are a very strong person. Um, and obviously a very dedicated uh, mom. Um, that, that's cool. That's cool. <laughs> so one more question, Alexandra. Um, what are you working on? Do we, or can we expect a, another book from you in the near future? by now that that's an illegal question. Well, it's kind of a loaded question. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I have learned more, and I really hope that I have um, the faith to hold on to this knowledge, which is, again, you know, I, I sound like a, like um, I'm some sort of uh, evangelical maniac when I say this, um, but I don't have a belief in traditional God, certainly. Every morning when I wake up, I do ask God or, you know, what's the equivalent of God. Mm-hmm. However, I imagine that um, what I will say is I am yours. Hmm. Show me the way. I love it. Um, and I have, I am almost always lost if I don't ask that question. If I do ask that question and I appear to be lost, then I figure that being lost is part of what my task of the day is. I love that. <laughs> that <laughs> Alexandra, um, um, I, I'm impressed. Uh, very wise words from a um, very remarkable woman, I think. Thank you so much for having me. It was an absolute pleasure.